There are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. Albert Einstein. Hey everyone, I'm Callan. Welcome to episode 57 of the Intentional Leader Podcast, where we help you lead yourself, inspire others, and make the world a better place. We release a new episode every two weeks, and I hope that this podcast can be a community to help you stay focused, to help you find inspiration, and to help you stay encouraged in the often challenging world of leadership. I want to give a special thank you to all of you that continue to share this podcast with your friends, with your network. Thank you especially to those that have taken a few minutes to rate and review this on Apple Podcasts. When you do that, it really helps us grow. It also helps us be more recognized by folks who are looking for leadership podcasts, those that are going on Apple Podcasts and just searching for leadership. It allows it to pop up. In fact, we just surpassed over 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts, which is really hard to do. And we continue to experience amazing growth because of your support. So thank you so much for tuning in and supporting us. Today's episode is brought to you by Higher Echelon Incorporated. Higher Echelon is a leadership development and organizational performance consulting firm, providing human capital and technology services to optimize your performance. Higher Echelon can help prepare your organization to meet the rapidly changing, complex, and often ambiguous requirements of today's world by developing resilient and adaptive leaders, modernizing and enhancing processes, and implementing transformational technology solutions. Many of you probably heard about Higher Echelon when I interviewed Dr. Joe Ross a few weeks ago about goal setting. If you want to learn more about Higher Echelon, go to higherechelon.com and there you can connect with the amazing team at Higher Echelon. You can learn more about how they can help you and your team. Today, I am so incredibly excited and inspired to bring you a conversation I had with Scotty Smiley. Scotty is just unreal. His story is unreal. He is such an inspiration. Back in 2005, while Scotty was in Iraq leading a 45-man platoon, he found himself in front of a suicide car bomb, and the man blew himself up. Shrapnel went through Scotty's eyes, and it left him blind and temporarily paralyzed. He were, A week later, he woke up at Walter Reed Army Medical Center completely without his eyesight. Imagine, as you're, as you're listening to this episode today, imagine going through that. Literally one week, you're in Iraq, you're leading a platoon, you're early 20s, and the next thing you know, a week later, you completely have lost your ability to see. And it was a tough period, justifiably, for Scotty. He started to question his faith, but he made a decision. He made a decision to forgive and to rebuild his life and to continue to serve in the army, becoming the first blind active duty officer in military history. And since that point, Scotty's bio is just looks like something from a storybook. I mean, it's just incredible. Army Times named Scotty Soldier of the Year in 2007. And then in 2008, he won an ESPY as the world's best outdoor athlete. He also got his MBA from Duke. He taught leadership at West Point, And then he commanded 
commanded a company at West Point. He was also the recipient of the Army's prestigious MacArthur Leadership Award, and he holds an honorary PhD from Mount St. Mary College in Newburgh, New York. In 2010, Scotty wrote the amazing book, Hope Unseen, and now he travels all over the country speaking and sharing his message of perseverance, courage, and hope. He's also an avid adventurer. He completed an Ironman. He climbed Mount Rainier. He's gone skydiving, surfing, all kinds of amazing things. He's always looking for his next chance to do something new. Him and his wife, Tiffany, who is his high school sweetheart, they live now in Spokane, Washington, and they're the proud parents of three wonderful kids. On this episode, we discuss Scotty's story, what life was like for him before losing his eyesight, and how he persevered through that moment and beyond. Scotty shares just the incredible way in which he perseveres, how he deals with tough days, even today. And I just feel like what he shares with us is so relevant, and his story is so inspiring. If you want to learn more about his story, go to hopeunseen.com. And you can also visit my website, calwalters.me, where you can get his full bio and links to everything we discussed today. I'm so pumped about this interview. I'm so inspired by Scotty. And without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Scotty Smiley. All right, Scotty Smiley, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here today. No, thanks, Cal. It's good to be on. <laughs> we were just talking off camera about all the crazy connections we have. And I was reading your book, Hope Unseen, which everyone listening, please go pick up the book Hope Unseen by Scotty Smiley with Doug Crandall. I, you know, sometimes I read books and I typically read at night where I, you know, sometimes books put me to sleep. This one kept me up. I was telling, I was telling Scotty that I, I had to turn the light off so my wife could go to sleep and go to the kitchen and, and read until about midnight. Cause it was, it's awesome. It's a page turner, but, um, Jeff Van Antwerp was my mentor at West Point, which, uh, was your company commander, Scotty. And then Dave Webb was my company commander in Hawaii, which one of your best friends, a huge part of your story. And then Doug Crandall was the officer in charge of Young Life when I was the cadet officer in charge at at West Point. So I'm so excited to share your story. And I'm so just just emotionally connected to to you, even though this is the first time that that we're talking. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like I said, it's great to be honest. Crazy interconnectivity of of those in the military. And who you know and how those that web just continues to weave, and uh, I look forward to the conversation. I I want to start. So we're going to obviously get into what happened to you in Iraq, but can you kind of give us a sense of what life was like leading up to that deployment to Iraq? Iraq back in two thousand five. Yeah, so it's, it's crazy to say, but I was born in a very large family: three bro- brothers, three sisters, uh, amazing mom and dad, and you know, moved all around the United States, just given my dad's occupation, fell in love with my high school sweetheart, Tiffany. And, you know, just looking at life and who I was and and where I wanted to be, I knew I wanted an education just kind of not just to set me up for success, but I didn't know what I wanted to be. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And when you come from a large family, finances are always uh, taken into consideration. If I could get into the military academy, it was for free. At least to my parents, the, the service of my, you know, I served the country for five years. And so I made that decision to, you know, fly from Washington State to uh, West Point, New York, uh, and attended the academy for four years and you know, was able to date my wife or a girlfriend at the time and married my high school sweetheart, Tiffany. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, while at the academy, it was, you know, it was 1999. Again, I'm dating myself uh, 40 years old now. Uh, you know, we were attacked on September 11th and it really changed my 
view of not just the safety of this world, the safety of, of Americans, uh, but more so my calling and who I was is, you know, I kind of had a perspective of, hey, join the army, serve five years, do my time, get out, you know, and enter into the business world or something. Uh, but it really changed at that time because I realized and understood that, you know, the freedoms that we have aren't free. And if we can just be attacked on a daily basis and we're not protecting our borders, our country, um, we're in trouble. And so I really began to look more deeply into my service, um, you know, and as a result, uh, my senior branched infantry and then chose Fort Lewis, Washington, uh, graduated and all right before graduation in May of 2003, you know, our country made a decision to go into Iraq and take out the uh, the Ba'athist regime and Saddam Hussein. So again, it, it really more enforced, you know, not just the security of our country, uh, but more my part in that and, and where I was going to be in, and where my country may send uh, me and in, in, in that process in the service. Uh, and so for me, I graduated, married my beautiful high school sweetheart, Tiffany. We were part of the, what is it called? 2% club at West Point. Uh, only 2% that entered the academy with their, uh, their uh, boyfriend, girlfriend leave with the same one. Uh, so it was, was happy. Uh, but upon, upon reaching uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, my first duty station, received a platoon, uh, and then we received orders to deploy to Iraq. And, you know, that's when uh, kind of my life changed. And, you know, I was truly called to serve my country, obviously in, in, a, in, a, in a place in which, you know, even now it's still disputed, should we have gone in? And, you know, wh- why did we go in? And, you know, for me, I, I look at it as like, I, I go where my country tells me to. And, you know, not to say it was uh, above my pay grade, uh, but for me, it was like, that's where I'm told to serve my country. And so um, I went and, and began that service overseas in Iraq. And how did Tiffany feel about you deploying? It was hard. And I think, I think it comes back to uh, the unknown is I really didn't know, even at the academy, what being active duty or being an officer in the Army meant where I would deploy, what it meant, what my daily schedule was. There, there's so much unknown. And, you know, when, you know, you're quote unquote in love and I asked her to marry me, there was conversations or where are we going to go? What are we going to do? What about insurance? What about, and I didn't have a clue, but we, we walked, you know, we were in love, you know, we say love is blind. It was it, her support uh, and love for me was, was beyond measurable. She loved me. She, she cared for me. And she was entering the journey uh, kind of in through the labyrinth of what the army was going to mean and what it was going to mean in our lives. Uh, and so for me, she did support, but there was still an unknown. And, and I remember, you know, bringing the mission orders home and it, it was hard um, and she didn't work. She wanted to spend as much time with me. Uh, and, you know, we were only really lived together for five months. Um, you know, when I got married, I, I said, uh, sorry, honey, I got to go to ranger school. Hopefully I see you in 62 days. Uh, she said, hopefully. I was like, well, you can get recycled, <laughs> you know. And it's sad. To, it's, it's not sad to say. It's, it's the unknown that she didn't understand right upon my marriage. My husband's going to leave me for two months it, or it could be longer. And she really understood, you know, not just the separation that we had at the academy, but also the separation right off in the beginning of ranger school. Um, and so she, knowing that, loved me and was always there be, 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 beside me, behind me, and more often than not, lifting me up and, and making sure that I, I go through each day with, with courage and, uh, you know, joy. 
That's so cool. It makes me think. So I actually, when I went to ranger school, my wedding was scheduled three months after I started. <laughs> so I had, I had Did one chance. On time? <laughs> I ended up, so I ended up recycling mountain phase and oh. made it on time. But I was, it, I was hope I was so worried that I might recycle again and then have to yeah. make that, that tough decision. Uh, but thankfully I didn't have to, I made it, yeah. but, um, yes, yeah, it's, so I- <laughs> it's, it's unique, the military and, and just the, you know, whether you're temporary duty somewhere, whether you're, you know, it's always the unknown. And, and that's where I give the majority of the credit is, isn't necessary to those who are serving, which they deserve all the credit, but it's more so the caregivers, the family members, the men and women, the, the moms and dads and the children that are there praying and, and encouraging and, and really fighting a fight at home. Um, not knowing, not understanding. And, and so again, I give our wives and, and the spouses, you know, big time props. Oh, totally. So when you deployed to Iraq, what was the operational environment? Was it pretty kinetic when you got there? Um, it wasn't that kinetic. Uh, so we were, it was Operation Iraqi Freedom 3. Uh, and so we originally deployed to Talafar, which is just the west of Iraq. And it's, it's closer to the Sinjar Mountains. I had a couple missions up, up to those mountain ranges to retrans site. Um, a lot of Yazidis, uh, obviously uh, Muslims and Christians in Talafar. Um, but it wasn't that kinetic. The, the, the unit that we replaced had only been in like two, three firefights the entire 12 months. And so, but at the same time is, is you know, when you have, now have a rifle with no blank firing adapter on and <laughs> rounds are chambered, the intensity of just how you feel and you know how you look out at the scenario and the security is is a lot different. But quickly, you know, brigade and battalion understood that having an infantry battalion in Talafar and then a, a a regiment, a cavalry regiment in in Mosul, which is a massive built up almost you know I think at the time around two million people, that didn't make sense just because of numbers, and so around four or five days, we end up switching, uh, replacing that cavalry unit and, and they took over Talafar and then we went into Missoula. And then probably the first month and a half around November, uh, the intensity started building up and in which it became a lot more kinetic, whether it's you know, suicide bombs on the road, uh, whether towards the Iraqi army, um, whether it was snipers, uh, rocket propelled grenades, uh, our base was, you know, it was a father, uh, for operating base Merez, which is right next to Diamondback. Um, it was mortared almost every lunch and, and dinner time just because these massive tents uh, kind of on a high ground. And so that kind of mentality of, of kinetic was always at the forefront of your mind every time you went out, even if it was to go hand out food and uh, you know meet and greet the people uh, or even doing a, a, a search, that kinetic uh, mentality and security was always at the forefront in everyone's mind, just because, you know, you're in a place that, uh, you know, some of the people didn't want you there and, and a lot did. So it, it was a unique, it was a unique setting. And, and I think we transitioned, you know, pretty quite well. How did you feel? So you're a platoon leader, you're in charge of about 45 people. You're a striker platoon leader. <clears throat> so you had strikers and that's just basically a wheeled vehicle that allows you to maneuver and there's some weapon systems on it. How did you feel in this kind of, you know, you're getting in firefights as a platoon leader, were you scared? I know in your book, you describe, you know, feeling like going into Narnia when you leave base, you kind of go into the unknown, but tell us a little bit about mentally how you were feeling. Cause a lot of folks can't relate to the idea of being 
like in combat and being shot at and trying to yeah. keep people alive. Yeah. I, I mean, I look at it. This isn't, this isn't a right comparison because there is no real comparison to what being in combat is, is when, when it, you, the quote unquote two way rifle range, you're shooting bullets and bullets are shooting back at you. It's very hard to describe the intensity um, and, and the level of thought that goes into it. But it's, it's like a, whether it be a football game, basketball game, baseball game, you know, professional athletes don't get on those courts without practice, without training, without learning how to shoot, how to pass, how to, to do layups and free throws or tackle and, you know, blocking and tackling. They practice, practice, practice before the game even, even starts. And so for me, I go back to the leadership education that I received, you know, not just from my childhood, high school, but more so the military academy. You know, we were talking about PL 300, you know, military leadership, teaching how to lead, how to, how to think, how to process, how to, you know, you know, teach trans transformational leadership, transactional, laissez-faire. All these things is what we experience, what I experienced. And then we were given leadership roles, whether you're private, uh, cadet private, a corporal, you know, you're a team leader, a squad leader, platoon sergeant, platoon leader, company commander. You're given all these experiences of how to lead. Of course, it's not in a two-way rifle range. Your life is never being put at, at, at risk. Uh, but then it's more so you go to the officer basic course where more leadership examples and lessons. Um, I, was, I was lucky enough to be able to attend ranger school where more leadership lessons. So with all that said is I entered into Iraq with a massive training and massive education of leadership behind me. And, and that's what enabled me to give you know, orders. That's what enabled me to, to lead and to uh, encourage the men to continue to fight every day. Uh, so, yeah, there was always a nervousness prior to going out. There was always a, you know, a, a consideration of where are we going? Where, you know, what's the route? What's the you know, primary, secondary, tertiary route? What, you know, primary, secondary, tertiary route you know, on the exfil? Where you know, we always were thinking about the scenarios prior uh, but as the old saying goes, is you know, you know, the mission goes out the window when, when you know, the first shot occurs. Uh, but again, the training and the leadership lessons that I had had, and, and the leadership lessons that the men and women that we deployed with always came to the forefront, even though there may have been a little scary, or you know, you're, I felt like I was in Narnia. It was using the leadership that I knew, and I knew what what properly do helped. Uh, each us through each day. Did it change at all when you, so your company commander was killed uh, while you were deployed, which, you know, for those that aren't familiar, you basically have a company commander and then you have platoon leaders that fall underneath the company commander. So this was the, this was your direct boss. Yeah. Did that, did that change your mindset in any way? It did. Uh, it, it meant it meant that life is so fragile, and you never know when your your ticket has been called, when your when your life is up. You know, and you know, Captain Bill Jacobson Jr. Uh, was just eating lunch in the cafeteria when a man in I believe in an Iraqi uniform uh, walked in in the middle and blew himself up. You know, looked normal, but ball bearings, metal strewn strewn. Killed, you know, 21 men, my company, men and women, my company commander being one of them, Sergeant Johnson. He was in, uh, at the time we called it MBC, officer now a sea burning uh, sergeant. He was also killed, um, just devastated hundreds of people. Like it brought reality of where we were at, what we were doing. Um, and it 
truly when it's your boss, the man who would wake you up at night to say, go out on a mission, or you'd report in the evening, in the morning, every day. The, the, con, con, um, the relationship we had was so tight. Um, it, it, it was hard. It was, you know, tears. It, it was, it's, it's tragic, beyond tragic. But again, I go back to, you know, I may be in Narnia, uh, where the, the evil witch may be coming after me, may have taken a friend of mine, but I'm still going to lead with the morals and the values and the beliefs that I have been raised with and what I know to be true. And, and I think one of the more difficult parts of that, of that scenario was there was a lot of anger with the men because they didn't now trust the Iraqi army. They didn't trust any of the Iraqi people. They now knew we're not even safe in our own base and that can't even eat you know, lunch breakfast, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner safely. Um, and, and so it's, it's in to calm down the resentment, calm down the, the wanting to bite anyone and everyone. And again, it goes back to leadership, goes back to education, goes back to just communication and talking and, and making sure that we're on the right path and we're doing what we're supposed to do. Uh, and so for me, it, it not only brought reality of the shortness of life, uh, that any day and any time of that day, our time can be up. Uh, but more so, you know, are we doing the right thing? Are we doing what we're called to do? Um, so I think that's what really, really changed my life with with the loss of uh, Captain Jacobson. And then at the time, Captain Van Antwerp, now Colonel Van Antwerp, takes over unexpectedly the company. Yeah. And in your book, you describe so vividly that how quickly that happened and the way Jeff approached the the men in such a vulnerable way. Can you tell us just about that, about what you remember about Jeff taking yeah. over that same day and, and what he had to say? I think that's, that's one of the more heart-wrenching parts of, of being deployed uh, when you lose men and, and women and you have to face reality. Um, I believe at the time Jeff was supposed to take over another company, uh, I don't know if Bravo or Charlie, one of the other companies, um, but you know, at the time, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Eric Krilla, now General Krilla, um, realized that who that Jeff was possibly the best place, best person to fit that role. And, and you know, and if any of those who have not been in the military, there's usually these regalias, change of commands, everyone gives speeches, that you know, everyone's happy, the outgoing is sad, um, you know, because of, of the change of of career, the new income is a little nervous, you know, have speeches written, this, none of that was present. It was, you know, it's time, uh, Eric Carilla, Lieutenant Colonel Carilla, uh, said, Hey, bring the company together. And it was more than like less than like four hours, less than six hours after the killing, you know, the, the slaughter of 21 men and women, Eric said, Hey, Jeff's going to be your new, you know, Captain Van Antwerp's going to be your new company commander. And Jeff just, you know, kind of in tears, just said, Hey, you know, Bill was my best, one of my best friends, always communicating, you know, kind of like those in the military, you know, you work on the ops side of the house, the operations side of the S3 department, um, and you, you grow close to people. And then now never got to say goodbye, not to say, you know, give final words, boom, all of a sudden. And I think for us as a company, it wasn't just uncertainty we now knew that the man who was leading us, our company, 
not only loved, but missed Captain Jacobson, but was also an amazing person to fill that gap. Amazing, you know, over and abundantly fill that gap to where we now could trust him. We knew he was hurting just as much of us and and in some parts more because of the relationship that he filled that gap. You know, I, I don't think there could have been a better person to fill that gap and to be our company commander than Jeff did. And I think over the next several months that I was able to be under his command, his sense of humor, his, his pithy, like to the point, uh, you know, getting, getting the information out, but also requiring the same from us was, was perfect. Uh, you know, we were good friends and we work out together. Um, and then now I, uh, I had to call him, sir, <laughs> you know, I had to report to him, but again, it, you know, I couldn't have imagined a better commander, um, you know, to be in charge and, and especially the time and when, when such tragedy happens, then tend to have Jeff uh, do what he did. And Jeff, for those that don't know him, is, I mean, the epitome of a soldier. He, he, if you look at him, he looks like G.I. Joe. He's super fit, <laughs> strong, all the things. He's, he's, he's funny too and goofy. But I, I think for all the leaders listening, I think what he demonstrated there was such a powerful display of vulnerability and just, and just, he was human in that moment. And I think, I don't know how yeah. the soldiers reacted, but what you describe in the book is willingness to just, just be real in that moment. Yeah. You know, you, I, I can't go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think so. There's always that temptation to just, to just put up that tough outer shell. And I don't know, did he give like in the moment being so real? Or do you think that's what the soldiers needed in that moment? I truly believe it was. Um, and, and, you know, I, I later as my career continued, um, went back and taught PL 300, but one of the things we covered is authenticity hmm. is that it's not a facade. It's not a picture that you're trying to draw for people to perceive you as it was true emotion, true feeling, but at the same time, a skilled leader who was put in a perfect place at the perfect time. And that authenticity, authenticity was shown through his actions, through his counseling, through his mentorship. Like he wasn't afraid to pull me to side and rip me into one. Uh, <laughs> and I needed it. And trust me, there's more often than not, I did need it. I was, you know, I thought I may have thought at the time I was mature and, and I'm looking back like, whoa, I was way off. But it, it was it was that leadership and that knowledge base that he came to that scenario that he filled it perfectly and he was authentic. He, he fit it in a, in a way, in a manner that, we knew he wasn't acting. We knew he knew what he was doing and he was a perfect, perfect fit. It makes me think of something I heard the other day. It was describing tough love and and they reversed those. They said, it, you know, love comes first. And that's what it, it appeared. There was a, there was a love there for the people, for the team, but also a willingness to, to be tough and to say, Hey, yeah. you know, you need to, you need to straighten up. So, yeah. so Jeff takes over as the company commander. How long after that, does the the incident with the the vehicle born IED occur? It was probably around four months. So uh, December twenty first uh, was when uh, Captain Jacobson uh, was killed, and then it was April sixth of two thousand five. Um, I was, you know, I, I came face to face with suicide car bomb, and I think what's what's crazy to say is how there is a bigger plan. There is. You know, we don't know the decisions that we make at the time and, and what impact they may have on us later on. 
But I was told, I think around like March 28th or 20, you know, March 28th or something like that. Hey, you, you have rest and relaxation on April 2nd. So basically six days. And I'm like, well, I'm married. Like my wife and I want the plan. We, we, you know, we want to do something together and go somewhere. And I said, can I delay it? And they, yeah, sure. I'm sure there's a lot of other soldiers in the end, you know, had been there six months that wanted to take the rest of relaxation. So I pushed off to like, it's like April 20 something. Well, go figure, you know, wow. no more than five, six days later, you know, I'm now face to face with a suicide car bomb. Wow. And for those that don't know that that's a period. So when you're deployed for an extended period of time, you could take what's called rest and relaxation or R and R and you get to typically go for two weeks, I think typically or something like that. You get to go uh, wherever you want, really. You go home, go go on a vacation, see your loved ones. Then you return back to, to theater. Wow. So, so yeah. tell us, so take us to that day. You said it was April, was it April 6, 2005? Yeah, okay. Yep. Take, take us to that day and tell us what happened. Yeah. So uh, wake up. I think I was on a late call. We were quick reaction force the day prior and, and we had unfortunately had come into contact, uh, another platoon, the, the MSG, the, uh, golly, I forget my acronyms. <laughs> I've been out of the army too long. Um, the, the mortar gun system, MGS, mortar gun system striker was hit by a suicide car bomb. And so you wake up probably like at 10 o'clock in the morning, many times, uh, you get on reverse cycle. So you spend all night awake and you sleep during the day. You all have blackout, uh, covers in, in your shoes or where you sleep. Uh, but received the intelligence report that there was suicide car bombs and, you know, kind of being the, the punk that I was like, geez, the Intel guy can't even update their intelligence. And I look at the top of the report and it's, it's the current day, but it fit exactly like the second, the, the day prior. And it was because there were more suicide bombs and there was concrete intelligence that they were out there. And so we were given a normal uh, battalion mission a company mission to to go out, kind of hit the ground, talk to people, talk to, you know, if they have any intelligence, uh, because sometimes the insurgents wouldn't want to kill or or maim the Iraqi people because it was the the manner in which they were operating was that the international forces, the Americans and all forces attached with us were the bad guys. Um, we were the ones that blew their country up. We were the one that destroyed them. And so it was kind of that psychological warfare that they were pulling. And so they would more often than not tell a region or an area to get out of the way, move because something's going to happen. And so we were to kind of search the ground and, and search the area and, and look for similar uh, scenarios or talk. And so exited the, uh, the compound, Fob Merez, Fort Operating Base Merez, and, you know, was on the, the horn with my uh, commander, now Jeff in Antwerp, uh, and that day prior at night, we had dropped off a squad, a uh, third squad to overlook Yarmouk traffic circle, just a massive, like five spoked traffic circle that we were hit on more often than not. So it was only rolling with three striker vehicles. Uh, again, normally a platoon has four striker vehicles. We only had three. Uh, and then got on the horn with my commander, Jeff, and said, you know, he said, hey, I'm getting on time intelligence that, that, Iraqis are being told to leave this area. So I want you to go up, look around, don't, you know, travel on the main supply route, which was uh, Tampa. That's what we uh, Americans had called it. And so I said, Roger, 
Um, got in my striker and headed north and kind of going through little subdivisions. And then I popped out on, on route Porsche. Uh, I think in the book I called it Barracuda just because of like operation security. So I kind of uh, switched things up uh, and saw a vehicle to my right. So he was facing West uh, and the back of his vehicle was lower than, to the ground than, than the front. And so I pulled up just to his South. So, you know, Again, it, it is dangerous, but based off of the amount of firefights we've been in, there's kind of, I'm not saying less fear, but there's more just a, a sense of, uh, and I'm not going to say a sense of invincibility uh, because of we understood the devastation of what these vehicles could do and, and what insurgents were willing to do, uh, but also given the rules of engagement that each unit, every, every military uh, individual had to abide by rules of engagement, which means you cannot shoot, you cannot react with force on any anyone at all unless you saw positively that they had a weapon and that weapon had been fired and you've seen and witnessed it. So it was, it was very restrictive. And so the, the only thing that I knew at the time was to get near him, yell at him to get out of his vehicle, um, and then you know we could search the vehicle. Um, and so again, it's, you know, you, you know, now that you look back, you understand, Hey, maybe I, I, I know I didn't make the right call at that time, but given that I was facing East on this road, he was facing West on the same road, no median, just cement in between us. He's probably about 15, 25 yards in front of me, um, kind of at an angle, like a 45 degree angle. I'm at his 45 degree angle off the left of his vehicle. Um, and I have metal all the way up to my chest. I have a bulletproof jacket on, bulletproof glasses, a helmet, so the CV, CVC uh, that I can communicate with and yelled at him to get out of his vehicle. And he looked over his left shoulder at me kind of at an angle, raised his hands off the steering wheel and shook his head no. Um, I yelled at him again. He then took his foot off the brake in which I knew, you know, he not only saw me, but now he's kind of trying to creep forward. And that's when I, I I don't know if I shot one round or two rounds in front of his vehicle and then boom, my, my world went black. So when that, when you say your world went black, do you remember anything like it, you just. In, in spurts, it's like, it's, it's foggy. Um, just because, I mean, anytime you get a massive, massive traumatic brain injury, um, you know, not only the, the major concussion that I had, but metal, you know, went, you know, went through my left eye, um, went into my skull. Um, and you know, I was bleeding internally, um, that I have brief glimpses of being in the back of the striker vehicle, but not seeing anything, but just hearing things. And then a brief glimpse of me in a hospital bed, pardon me, uh, in the combat support hospital. Uh, but it was like an out of body experience. Like people were around me, and then all of a sudden, like a doctor comes in and says, get out of the way. Um, I don't know if any of this, the, these did happen. I know I was in the striker vehicle, but other than that, a lot of what happened that day and, and the next few days are not necessarily memories, but of stories that people have told me um, to kind of re replay or reenact what, what actually had happened. Um, and so for me, um, kind of what I later learned is the man blew himself up, you know, taking his own life, put shrapnel through both of my eyes. The rear gunner 
and our striker vehicle had shrapnel enter into his face. Uh, he was later returned to duty that day. The squad leader in the back of my striker, he passed out due to the concussive blast, woke up about 30 seconds later. Um, and then I don't know what Iraqis, if any, were injured. Um, my battalion commander, Eric Carrillo, said he saw the explosion, said it was one of the biggest fireballs he had ever seen. Um, combat support hospital, sorry, the medical evacuation vehicle who had the first sergeant in it uh, was there within like five minutes just because of how close everything was. Um, one of the soldiers took the knife off my pocket and cut the CVC off to basically bandage my face, placed me on a, uh, on a stretcher, um, put me into the medical evacuation vehicle, and I was in a combat support hospital probably no more than 10 minutes after my, my, the explosion, after my eyesight was taken. Um, it was obviously put into a medically induced coma. And then that's when I was taken down to Blod, Iraq, uh, on a Black Hawk within an hour, uh, where, you know, they, they enucleated my left eye, uh, gave me a craniotomy, which means they, they took off part of my skull to enable, they knew my brain was going to swell. And so it enabled the, the, the swelling to, uh, you know, that swelling not to take my life. Uh, there was a piece of shrapnel in the middle of my right eye, which the ophthalmologist said, you know, I don't think we'll ever, he'll ever be able to see again, but I don't want to do surgery now just because, you know, my life was obviously a, a more important factor and, <laughs> you know, of priorities. And so they sewed my right eye shut and put me on a, uh, on a, on a bird to launch dual Germany, uh, where what's crazy to say is my sister, uh, Mary Lynn, who is, uh, was learning German, got a note from my parents and she met me at the air force base because one of her classmates was an air force officer posted that launch tool in Germany, uh, was able to, and then she was able to fly with me back from launch tool to Washington DC, where I was able to finally meet my wife, Tiffany. Did the doctors think it was, uh, rare or unusual that it, it just impacted in your eyes versus your, I mean, cause you, your face, I mean, you look great. You really do. <laughs> I'm looking at you right <laughs> now. <laughs> Good looks intact. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't think so. I think what was, what is more interesting to, at least to me, and, and I don't, you know, physicians usually don't tell patients wow, you turned out pretty well, given the, uh, <laughs> the scenario that you were just in front of, is I feel it's amazing that I can live the life that I'm living, even given the traumatic damage that was actually done. Um, you know, for me, waking up in Walter, uh, Walter Reed Army Medical Center, you know, I was, I was temporarily partially paralyzed. I couldn't move the right side of my body, um, missing, quote unquote, both of my eyes you know, my skull is, you know, missing, like, and I'm waking up, not really knowing what happened, like talk about depths of despair, talk about depression, talk about anxiety is my life was over all the work that I put forth at the military academy, all the dreams, all the ambition, all the, everything that I had planned and expected were like, poof, blew up in smoke, blew up when that man blew himself up. And, and for me, that's when life really hit me is, you know, I, I may have had faith. I may have had all this, these plans and dreams. I had nothing. It was all gone. It all blown up in a million pieces. And I think that's where, you know, true leadership is shown 
true leadership comes to play. Uh, and it was the, you know, my wife who by my side every single day, loving me, encouraging me, praying for me, um, you know, having me do the physical therapy, doing what, you know, I should be doing is what really enabled life to, to come true. And, and for me to really understand what life is really about. When did that first hit you? When, like, when did you first experience that depression and overwhelm about your circumstance? I, I don't think, I don't know if it was casual, like a casual drop. I think, you know, I think it was hard to, to uh, contemplate or understand fully is that I had a traumatic brain injury. So my conscience wasn't necessarily mine for several days. As in you're slowly coming out of a coma. They don't, they'll, they'll put you back into a coma if your body reacts negatively to, to sustained, um, you know, I'm, I'm talking medical terms. I, I have no clue what I'm talking. I'm an infantryman. Come on. Uh, you know, that it, it took a while for me to fully understand what happened. It totally took me a while to understand this is now my new life. Like you actually can't see you. You can open your eyes all you want, buddy, but you have no eyes. You can't see. You never will see again. You can't walk because you can't move your right leg. This is your new life. And in and of that, it's it's not like, oh, okay, sounds good. No, by no means. It was it can't be true. It can't be true. And so, you know, in, in depression, there, there are stages. And one of the first is denial. Like, well, I'm sure they can do something. They did surgery on my right eye. And doctor came in and said, I'm sorry, Scotty, but you'll never be able to see again. And geez, that's, that's a good start to the day. Hmm. It, it's, it, it was horrific. But it was less of the reality of when that occurred. It's more of what happens now. This is the new, this is the new life. This is my new normal. How am I going to live? How, what, what life choices am I going to make? Am I going to be positive? Am I going to be joyful? Am I going to be happy? Or am I going to be depressed? Am I going to live with anxiety? Am I going to live with depression and, and blaming everyone? And I think that's where the true, you know, leaders and the true men and women who face life and, and have hardships you know, the cream really rises to the top. <coughs> how, Scotty, how did you get through that? How, how do you, when you reflect back on that period, how did you navigate the, that kind of dark period of, of anger and depression and, and, you know, where you are today? How did you, how did you navigate that? Cause I think we all can learn so much from that. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, um, it's interesting to see how our lives uh, occur and what happens in our lives. And more often than not, as, from my view, is because of the decisions that they've made in, in the past. That, that hindsight is not 2020 because you make a decision at the time, given the information that you have, given the vision that you have, given everything you have. And when you come back from, you know, what is it called, Monday morning quarterback, those aren't the scenes, that's not the scenarios that the quarterback saw and, and what was, was given to him at that time. And likewise, for me, is, you know, I was raised as a Christian. Um, I, you know, leaving family, leaving, um, you know, going to school, I made a choice that, you know, 
God is who I still want to love. God is who I still want to praise. Um, and so, you know, at the academy, I'd go to, you know, Sundays, I'd go to church every Sunday morning, like pretty much the only morning you're able to sleep in. <laughs> um, I would wake up early. Um, and then finally my junior year, uh, one of my, one of my best friends said, Hey, do you want to teach Sunday school? I was like, yeah, oh my goodness, I'd love to. And so I was able to teach Sunday school my junior and senior year of, of West Point. And then even in Iraq, you know, whether it was, I'd ask the men, hey, I'm going to say a prayer before we deploy. Almost every mission, I think almost every mission, there's a couple that I forgot. And someone said, hey, sir, are you going to pray? <laughs> I mean, it's just frustrating. You know, we take our helmets off, I kneel and, and, and pray. Like hmm. that was the life that I had chosen and, and God who was who I loved. But now when the rubber meets the road, who am I denying? The first person, the first people I'm going to die, deny are the ones that are closest to me. And I remember one of my best friends coming in and say, hey, Scotty, do you want to say a prayer? I said something effective like, I, I don't know how to pray and I don't think I know God. And, and you literally could have heard a pin drop. Hmm. Like, and, and for me, that's, that was my reality. It's like, whatever, I don't care. Like, you know, because in my mind, like, all the dreams, all the ambitions, like, well, God's going to allow it. God's going to enable it. God's going to blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what God now allowed? Hmm. He allowed my life to go blind. He allowed, you know, Captain Jacobson's life to be taken. He allowed other men that I had served with their lives to be taken. And now this is the God that I'm going to serve. This is a God that I wanted to, to worship. And for me, it was like, it was selfishness. It was pride that if, if this is the life that he was going to give me, I, I didn't want anything to do with him. I didn't want to have anything to do with them. And I think so for me, looking back at who I was and, and who I knew to be true. And at the time it was, it was that faith that was, I was really struggling with that one day, you know, guys like Gary Sinise, the actor, Toby Keith, the country singer, even the secretary of the army. I was like, Nope, don't want to see him. Don't want to see him. That Tiffany said, Scotty, a little boy wants to say hi. His name's Andrew Harris. And I literally just started crying. Because, see, Andrew Harris was a boy I had taught Sunday school my junior year, first grade, that I later found out that he's heard in, in a chapel that a West Point, 2003 West Point grad had been very seriously injured, blinded, and was now in a Walter Reed Army Medical Center. And so he asked his dad, Dad, can we go down and say hi? Are you, you know, encourage Scotty? And at that time, in my hospital bed, still temporarily paralyzed, permanently blind, fully knowing my life has changed forever. When that little boy came to my room, how I look, I thought to myself, and, and I think for me, it, it wasn't necessarily myself. I, you know, as Christians, I believe in the Trinity, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. It's like, it was the Holy spirit speaking. It's like, Scotty, how are you going to tell this little boy? No. How are you going to tell this little boy? No. Who you knew just drove six hours to come and say hi to you. And I don't think it was at the time where it was just like, boom, brief, you know, lightning that hit me. But it was a later an understanding that your life may be different. Your life may never be the same. But if you believe in me, I can make you impact more men and women than you ever knew you could have and be far more impactful in this world than you ever knew you could have. But you have to believe in me. And so I... <laughs> you know, wiping the tears away. 
said, yeah, Andrew, you can come in. And I, at the time I'm in a hospital bed, my, uh, my eyes are missing. My HUD is sunken in. I looked an absolute disaster. Um, Andrew held my hand for like 15 minutes, just stoic. Wow. I think Larry, he said he was scared. Um, (laughs) But what he did was he enabled me to see past my own misery, past my own depression, past my own anxiety and stress that I now knew that God had a plan. And all I had to do was believe in him and then take the baby steps, not giant steps, not like Hussein Bolt, 100 yard sprints, beating everyone, (laughs) but slow and steady steps forward in my recovery. And that's when my life really began to change of from the depression. And it's crazy to say it, it was quick. It was a quick recovery spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, it obviously took years and years and years emotionally to recover um, relationally. Like I love my wife to death and, you know, I was only in Walter Reed for a little under two months and we pushed out to Palo Alto, California to attend blind rehabilitation center in the VA. And I'm sure I was not nice to her. And, you know, I, I have to hold her right up her left arm because I didn't know where I was going. And she looked at me, she goes, you know, Scotty, I love you so much, but I really do not like you at all. <laughs> and you're like, uh, okay, but guess what? I'm still holding on to her arm. Mm. We're still, a couple. we're still partners. And I mean, that's where the true love comes is, you know, Tiffany by my side. And again, you kind of, we hit on like Jeff in Antwerp is his wrestling relaxation. Guess where he came back to Hmm. Washington DC to come see me. And I was beyond furious because like, why wouldn't you go, you know, they had a daughter. Why don't you go down to Florida to, you know, to the Bahamas somewhere versus Washington (laughs) DC. And again, it was the leader that he was, and I'm sure it's part of the friendship, but he knew he needed to see me. He needed to be there by my side. And that truly is, is what great leaders do is they sacrifice their own lives. They fact sacrifice their own schedules. And yes, his wife too had to sacrifice, you know, the Bahamas or wherever they partially planned on going to be there by my side. And that is what, you know, you know, I, I can't thank him. I've, I've thanked him a ton, but I can't thank him. And hmm. I definitely can't thank Tiffany enough for the encouragement, the hope and the inspiration that, that they've been right by my side, encouraged me to, to, to live a better life and to make a decision to constantly, constantly look at improvement and recovery. So much of that deeply resonates with me. And I love when Jeff came to see you because at the time in your book and you, you talk about it and, and, justifiably, it sounds like you're struggling a lot with who am I now? My identity, what, what can I do? Uh, to the point of where it, it seems that you're questioning whether the people around you love you or, and then to see these people make that, to answer those questions for you. Uh, and right. one of the things that I love that Jeff did when he came is he he forced you to go down and do a pull up competition, uh, and I think you did like nine pull ups, which is amazing. Uh, oh and, yeah! But just the, the idea. Physical therapist got mad because you've been shamming on me the entire time. <laughs> of course, he didn't know that my heart was about to explode, and, and I, I wasn't doing. Jeff, of course, did like thirty five. Yeah. In one of course, of course. Yeah. But but just the idea that like 
I believe in you, Scotty. We're going to go down and we're going to do pull-ups. And I, I, another thing that really resonates with me that you just said about your relationship with God is so often, I think, beliefs shape behaviors. And it's interesting. Recently, I've really been growing in my intimacy with God. It's been amazing. And I think God has revealed to me so much that often when I'm striving, when I'm experiencing frustration, so much of it is wrapped around my identity. It's, it's, yeah. I, I'm trying to find my identity in other things. I'm striving to accomplish. I'm so worried about other people's opinions. And instead, God is saying to me, Cal, I love you, full stop. Like you are enough, full stop. Yeah. Or I am enough, full stop. And, and I, I can only imagine when, when something like your eyesight is taken from you, what that would do to that question of identity. Like, who am I now? Like, who, who can I be now? And, and to hear you say that God answered those questions, that you're still loved by me. And oh, by the way, I've got an even bigger plan for you <laughs> and how I'm going to use you. That's just amazing. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And, it, and the amazing part about it is not when I'm in the depths of despair, but it's, it's when you're going to make that decision because each and every one of us have a choice. Each and every one of us have a choice on, on the life that we're willing to live, wanting to live and going to live. And, and it's not just one choice, but it's a choice every day. Am I going to wake up with a smile today? Or am I going to wake up sad, pouty face? Am I going to look at, you know, the sun is rising and I pretty much can guarantee it's going to rise again tomorrow. It's done it pretty much ever since the existence of, of the sun and earth, <laughs> but it's how, am I going to choose to live this life? How am I going to choose to live in the situation or the scenario that has been placed in front of me? I think that's where, you know, the remarkable story really begins is that, you know, people of, of that love me, that were there by my side, that weren't just speaking frugality and, and just, Oh, you'll be okay. You'll be okay. They understood I was hurting, but they also understood if you can look past this, the world's your oyster. You can do anything that you set your mind to. Um, and I think that's where the story really begins. And, you know, um, the story, you know, begins to get exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I just want to ask you, cause I'm, I'm really curious when you have those moments of doubt, when you have those moments of struggle, cause I'm sure that you still have them. Uh, oh, yeah. where do you go? What do you tell yourself? Cause I think we could all, we all go through that, but I'm curious, especially for you, someone who has really been through a lot, like what do you tell yourself or how do you pull yourself out of that? Yeah. And I, I don't think I have to look historically and, you know, it's like, well, Hey, I did make it through West Point. Not a lot of people can do that. Mm -hmm. I didn't make it through Ranger school. Not a lot of people can do that because then when I do that, where I then put my faith, it's in myself. And if I'm questioning something, if I'm questioning myself, how can I put faith in myself? Because myself is who I'm questioning. It, I go back to the team that's surrounding me. My wife, who's there to support me, I ask her and we sit down and have a conversation. We go out to dinner, just the two of us, and we discuss in depth detail of how I can make it through or how I can accomplish this or what my goals are, what my ambitions are. Families, friends, loved ones. Uh, but most of all, for me, is is my faith, is God, is asking God. And yeah, thousands and thousands of prayers go up every day. Are they all answered? No. Well, actually, they probably are, but just not in the form that I want them to be answered. That it's going back to the team, the people and men and women that you love, the men and women that support you, 
is that life is not alone, that we're not just in our own chrysalis. We're not just our own little world that, you know, if everyone just left me alone, I'd be fine. If everyone left me alone, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be here. It's dependent upon them and, and loving them and encouraging them just as much as they do me. That's what helps me get through the questionable times. That's what helps me through the hardships and the hard times is that love, um, with everyone uh, that really enables me to see the path forward. I love that community and, and faith. We've been in one of my men's groups, we've been really spending a lot of time in that story of Mark two, where the, the men or the bring the paralyzed man into the house through the roof. They cut a hole up in the roof and they bring him down and it, and you get to him on the ground where we all assault him in. <laughs> exactly. And it just reminds me of how powerful community is. We all have to be carried at some point. And, and I love that really resonates with me, just the idea of needing to rely on our community and, and in our faith too. Uh, what a great takeaway. I want to ask you about Tiffany, because when I look at your story, just, I mean, I love, I love the, the love story before this yeah. happened, but I also just am blown away by the love story after this happened. Like when the love was put to the test, oh my goodness, has she risen to the occasion? And, and you describe her background in the book of just this incredible athlete with this, <laughs> this grit and passion that she's certainly applied to you and your family. But what, what have you seen from Tiffany and, and what can she teach us from the way she lives her life? I think just the growth that, that she was, she chose to, to marry into a interesting and, and unique scenario called the military. Didn't know what it was gonna, what she was gonna face. Uh, I don't think, I think we, I, I know I shared, like I didn't either, but understood that I love this man. I, I love God and it's gonna be a journey. But with that, when my life blew up in a million pieces on April 6th, so did her life, that she was now married to a blind man. She was now responsible for, for waking up early in the morning to drive me to work. She was now responsible for picking me up at nine o'clock at night, getting the kids out of bed in the car to come pick me up from work so I can make it home. This was now her new life that she just didn't get stuck on. This isn't the life I chose. This isn't the life I want. This was now for better or for worse. And, and I, I, I hope that it's not always for the worst, but it's the growth and the maturity that she understood. If Scotty can't be there to support me, I'm going to seek others. I'm going to seek women. She can seek her mom, her sisters, her friends to grow and not just in faith, but in leadership, in knowledge, in intellectual uh, ability, in emotional, you know, emotional quotient, something that we all learn in leadership is how to react, how to, to, how to be her best. I think that's what, you know, stands out so strongly about her is, yeah, she has grit. She's a left-handed, you know, crazy, <laughs> watch out for the left hook. <laughs> it's that constant support, but constant growth to be the best person that she can be, not just for me, our three amazing boys, um, this world, but most of all for God. And that's what, you know, suit, you know, stands out so well with Tiffany. She's just had an amazing growth. As I was doing my homework, I read something about Tiffany and her approach to parenting, probably both of your approach to parenting of just letting, putting your kids in a position where they're going to fail. Can you tell us about that? Because that, that that sounds really cool. Yeah, it's, it's like 
it's too easy, you know, as, as a parent now to be the quote unquote helicopter parent, like, Oh, they got in trouble at school. I'm going to go drive down and call the teacher and, and, and make excuses for my son or make excuses on to the principal why they're wrong. And for us, it's like, no, weird. When did I learn the most is when I'm put in situations and or scenarios that my intelligence or my emotional, my moral uh, stance is being questioned as what decisions I am making, where, where I can really prove myself. And I think there's one, one scenario just uh, several years ago you know, we have our, our boys in like Parks and Rec swim team and Grady, our, our oldest said, hey, Tiffany asked like, hey, do you want to be on this swim? Like it's a competitive swim team. And Tiffany already knew he didn't know like the breaststroke enough, like his kick was off just by watching. She knew. So she knew he was going to fail, but she didn't tell him that, but took him, let him swim. And in the end, the coach basically said, hey, you didn't make the team because of this, 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 that Tiffany knew that he wasn't going to make the team and didn't tell him you're not going to make the team because you don't know this, but enabled him to experience, to do his best, to try his best, fully knowing that he most likely wouldn't make it. And then that's when the learning experience began is now he was getting given the ability to say, okay, you still want to make the team. What do you need to work on? And I think it's, it's in those scenarios that it's not, this guy's wrong. His kick is great. It looks phenomenal. And what's insane to say now, he has the most beautiful stroke of anyone in the pool. Wow. Um, and it's because is he was placed in a position that he he was set up for failure. Like, and we knew it. You know, obviously you know, secure, you know, he wasn't uh, you know, we're not putting our children's lives on the lines, but we're giving them the ability to make a decision. And then enabling them to be responsible for decisions and the results of, of what goes forward. So I think it's just, it's amazing, like how she looks at life. And I think the same is true for all of us. It's like when we're put in positions and, and situations, yeah, it'd be great if my parents or felt friends and loved ones comes and rescues me here and there. It's like, well, then, you know, I, I want to be able to be responsible for my own choices. And as is my wife and each and every one of us. Um, and I think you can you you can't start young enough when we teach our children how to to think, how to believe, and how to act, uh, especially around other people. Uh, you can't start soon enough. That's so good. I I want to as we're kind of wrapping up here. I I there's so much triumph that you've had since the injury on April 6, two thousand five. You ran an Ironman. You taught at West Point. You went to Duke and got your MBA. You speak around the world. You've written a book, which is incredible. I, I want to ask you though, because I just this this part of the book touched me, perhaps because I know Jeff, but just just this, it seemed to be a big pivotal moment for you. And that was heading to Hawaii, staying with Dave Webb's uh, in-laws, Tanya's father, who are like surf legends on the North Shore. And you have this idea that that you want to surf. <laughs> this is, of course, yeah, I, at, <laughs> after I, I don't the make the best decisions all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I love the conversation between you and Tanya's dad about surfing pipe. By the way, the first place that I ever took my wife to try to teach her to surf was Chun's, yeah. which turned out terrible. In fact, I don't think she ever wants to surf again. So that was that was a good moment in our marriage. Great yeah. job, great job, Cal. But uh, yeah. so you decide you get out to Hawaii and you say, "I want to surf." Yeah. And I mean, tell us about that and tell us about just the, the triumph and, and kind of how that 
what that meant to you. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting to see how we look at at locations and places. Like I remember at West Point, I had as my screensaver just beautiful islands, tropical islands all over the world, and I was just like, oh, if I ever have the chance to go, oh, I'm going to want to serve. And now that I'm on the island, I'm in the North Shore, one of the best places to surf in the world. I'm blind. I, how? And I'm like. Well, if, if, if you don't ask, how are you going to know? And so I, I asked, you know, Tanya's dad, Scott, hey, you and he's like, oh, you're going to hurt someone. You're going to drown. You're going to kill someone. <laughs> like, geez, that went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> well, I didn't know. But at the time, Tim's like, hey, Jeff and his wife are in, in, in Hawaii. They, they came out. They're, they're R&R as out here. And so I visited. like, hey, Jeff, you, will you take me surfing? And Jeff's personality, large and like, yeah, of course, I got some, I got some long boards. And meanwhile, my wife is looking at him, looking at her wife, like, oh, like, but it's about going after things, you know, going after your dreams, even though every the, the, the deck is stacked against you, is you never know if you don't ask. You never know if you never try. And I think that's where where I why I learned truly the ability that I have is it's anything, it's everything. You just have to ask, you just have to get assistance. And I think some of the worst experience of surfing was just trying to get past those, that breaker, your neck is sore, your arms are sore, your back is sore, you're just pedaling. I don't even know where I'm going. And I quickly realized like, why is my head up? I don't have to look at anything. So I just laid it on the surfboard, <laughs> put a lot of stress off my back. And then Jeff's like, little right, little right. But in the end, it was just knowing, which I, had, I still had difficulty with, knowing when to start paddling, paddling. And he said, you can look into the distance in the horizon and see little swells. And when that swells, he's like, it's, and surfers know this, is, you know, it's 35, 38 seconds away. And then he count down. It's like, all right, here it comes. And I'd start paddling, paddling, paddling. And then I tried to stand up, I fell. And he's like, hey, it's great. And I'm like, but but how do you know? He goes, you'll know when you can't paddle anymore that it's time to get up. And so it's probably the third time. I was like, I I'm, I'm moving. And so I boom, I stand up. I'm like, woohoo. And literally, it feels like you're on top of the world. It's like <laughs> the most amazing feeling. Uh, and and it's it, I go back to is like, I never would have been able to surf. I never would have been able to even take it into consideration if I never was going to ask. And the first time I asked, everything that's wrong with surfing was mentioned to me. You're going to drown. You know, how long can you hold your breath? You're going to hurt someone. You're going to hurt yourself, you know, which is all true, but it's not just true for blind people. It's true for sighted people. <laughs> but it was then not me just accepting a no. It was me, me now finding an opportunity, going to find someone that can assist, someone that does believe in me that will enable that to happen. And I think what, you know, kind of in this little quick story is I went later back to Scott's like, Hey, went surfing today. What? <laughs> Why am I a bang? And he's like, you've got to be kidding me. He's like, you still want to take it? And boom. Next thing I know, I'm out at Chun's Reef. He at the time saw three foot face waves. By the time we got out there, they're like six foot face. But it was all about, you know, going back and, and I'm not just the redeeming part of, of living life to its fullest, but always pushing the envelope, always doing your best to, to be 
who God's called me to be and who I can be for my wife, my family, and to make this world a better place to be. Man, so cool. And you had never surfed before, right? No, no. I, I, I wakeboarded in, in high school. Like I could do, I think I did a couple backflips, 180s, you know, it, it, again, nowhere near professional. Um, and I didn't even really understand the the, uh, the process other than, hey, it's kind of like a skateboard, just a little <laughs> bigger. <laughs> I, I, that just blows me away as someone who's tried to surf on the North Shore and, and did it just a little bit, but I'm blown away that you did that. I'm blown away that you surfed in general, surfed on the North shore and then surfed on Chandra just because that's hard in general. And, uh, I just, what a, what an incredible Testament to the power of, of belief in yourself. And like you said, having someone that believes in you and just a willingness to confront your fear and say, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And, uh, living life fully. And, um, I now know not, not only publicly speak, but work for Drexel Hamilton. It's a, uh, it's an investment bank out of New York, service-disabled, veteran-owned, and operated. Um, and, and people would say, geez, a blind man in banking? Again, it's, it's not me who who is doing the work. It's the team. It's, it's the group. It's the individuals. It's about connecting the dots. And again, it's, it's about seeking the dreams of what I want to do and how I can make this world a better place is what I always want to do and always and what I feel called to do. Well, you're absolutely doing it. You and Tiffany, if, if people want to learn more about and follow your, your journey, where's the best place for people to go? Yeah. Uh, hopeunseen.com uh, is, is kind of, you know, a little bit more about my life, the pictures. Obviously, Hope Unseen is, is a brief glimpse of, of my story. It's a book. Amazon is a, is a great place to purchase it. Um, you know, more than me is, uh, Tiffany's website. Uh, she has tiffanysmiley.com, but then also more than me, it's, it's an outreach to women. Um, it's a for-profit business that, that helps women build not just their business, marketing, branding. She has doctors, medical doctors, psychiatrists, just amazing men and women that, that are able to assist, uh, women in their business development and life development. Um, and so, uh, those are the two places that you can reach both of us. And again, we look forward to, um, making a positive impact on this world, uh, not just here in Washington State, the United States, but world, and and look forward to meeting uh, everyone that wants to reach out. That's so cool. And don't you have a documentary on Amazon or on? Yeah. Um, so Beat Feet um, is the documentary on the Iron Man. So it's it's a it's a pretty cool. Uh, you know, it's like 49, 45 minute uh, long documentary. So it's 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 really cool to see. Uh, a pretty miserable race. <laughs> uh, but I was happy to say I did cross the finish line with just a few minutes to spare. Wow. Uh, but it's, it's a really cool story. It kind of shows the background of my life, but more uh, than anything, the, the, the train up on what it is required to do in Ironman and kind of the commitment, um, not just in life, uh, but what a, a race like that actually takes. Wow. Well, Scotty, any, any parting words for the leaders out there before we, uh, before we head out? Uh, yeah, just that, you know, we all have a choice. We have a choice in how we want to lead. We want, we have a choice in who and how we want to present ourselves. And each and every day people are watching, people are watching on how you, you face life. Um, and with that choice is to choose the right, to continue to fight the good fight, continue to do what you're called to do, despite whether it be physical maladies or injuries or relationships, hardships, even work, is do the best that you can do and do it with all your might. 
and be an example to someone, lift someone up, encourage them and bring them across the finish line if they're struggling. Um, again, I, th- I just can't thank you enough, Cal, for having me on today. Um, wish you the best of luck and uh, continue to, to spread the word. Well, Scotty, I just, I just want to encourage you. You are such an inspiration, you and Tiffany. Your story is amazing. Your faith is amazing. And your, your passion for leadership and for helping people, uh, man, just keep it up. You guys, you guys are amazing, truly. And, oh, and I, I just want to encourage everyone to go check out the book and all of the things that Scotty mentioned, his websites and Tiffany's uh, website and her company. I will put links to all of that at my website in the show notes. And uh, Scotty would love to keep the conversation going and stay connected with you. And uh, I, I wish you all the best and uh, no, sincerely thanks, appreciate the, the time today. Thank you very much. All right. You too. Hey friends, I hope that you were inspired by that conversation with Scotty Smiley. Please go pick up his book, Hope Unseen. Go to his website, hopeunseen.com. We barely scratched the surface today of his story and the depth of his experience. For me, Scotty is a reminder that we are not defined by our circumstances. No matter how much is taken from us, no matter how difficult life life becomes, we can choose to put our trust in God, to rely on the community around us and push ourselves like Scotty has done and continues to do to live life to the fullest, to not accept the limitations of our fears or our desires to remain comfortable or feel sorry for ourselves. Maybe it's not an Ironman skydiving or surfing, but we should all push ourselves to use what has been given to us. Every day is truly a miracle. If you enjoyed this, please share it with someone else. Tell someone about Scotty and his story. I'm sure that it can inspire other people that are in your network. Remember that life is short, so let's go make it count today, friends.